Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Creating an international best-selling novel involves having the right book, dealing with exactly the right themes at precisely the right time. There's a degree of luck involved, of course, but there are some essential ingredients. You don't necessarily need all of them, but with the right combination, there's a spark, and an unknown novel can become a literary sensation. First, you need a novel that's well-written and engaging, something that readers really respond to. She's an amazing writer, and her prose is just, you know, dripping in observations and universal truths and, you know, pop culture references and just things that make you stop and go, oh my gosh, she's so right, like, I never thought about that, but, you know, that's something I knew but couldn't articulate, and now she's done it for me. In the case of commercial genre fiction, which is where most bestsellers come from, The novel needs to fulfil the expectations readers have for the genre. So, you know, if it's a crime novel, there needs to be some crime. But if the novel is going to stand out, it can't just lazily stick to the clichés of the genre. This book is about a psychologically tormented policeman who discovers the dead body of a beautiful woman on page two and must solve the mystery of her death in a wild and tortured landscape. A landscape which reflects, wait for it, his wild and tortured soul. So, you know, a novel that's going to be a bestseller usually needs to do something new, fresh, original. It's a fantastic thriller, right? It has everything you want. It has dark secrets. It has despicable people, unreliable narrators, big twists, and it does all of those brilliantly. But that's not enough. Bestsellers almost always need money behind them. Lots of money. You need prominent placement in bookshops, you need ads on the side of buses, social media campaigns, big name recommendations, and on and on. We also have to take into consideration that bestsellers usually, for the most part, are made. They're not born. A hardback edition is always a good sign. And when I saw that it was being published in hardcover, I knew, okay, the publisher is really behind this book. She's getting the spend, as we would say, marketing budget. Um, and she's a lead title. So her publisher really pushed her out there. I think obviously she got a huge push from the publishers as well. It was her third book and she even said herself that they didn't expect um, they didn't expect it to be as big as it was because she'd had two previous that were like mildly successful. But a publisher can only get a book so far. What you need from that point is word of mouth. You need people talking about it, tweeting about it, recommending it for their book clubs, conspicuously reading it on public transport. You have to have something that pushes the book to that tipping point where everyone is talking about it. Word of mouth as well, because when you read it, you tell people, like, you have to read this book. The twist in the middle is just so unreal. Like It has a big, whacking twist in the middle, which is quite unusual as well. And it's the kind of twist where once you get to it, You want to turn to someone who's already read the book and go, oh my God, you know, I didn't see it coming. And a really good twist can definitely help things along the way. 
And finally, there's the wider place of the book in society. The novel needs to catch a cultural updraft. It needs to reflect the times it's written in, to play with or challenge or reinforce social anxieties or aspirations, cultural trends and movements. It was published in 2012, so sort of just coming off the end of the economic crisis. And um, it's a narrative that like turns on itself halfway through um, and you're, you're left really uncertain. And I think... That's a very, um, that spoke to a very prescient fear of people, that people had that, you know, how in control are we of our own narratives? Um, how sure are we that we know what's going on? Um, and also the really ever-present fear that your husband or wife may be lying to you, may be a psychopath. I better introduce the two guests you've been listening to. The voice you've just heard is Eva Burke, an expert in the area of domestic noir, the subject of a PhD she's currently completing in Trinity College Dublin. And I'll be getting back to domestic noir in just a minute. And my other guest is author Catherine Ryan Howard. Hi, I'm Catherine Ryan Howard. I'm a thriller author from Cork. My debut was Distress Signals, which was shortlisted for the John Creasy Dagger, which I never miss an opportunity to say because it was the greatest thing ever. And my new book, The Liar's Girl, came out on March 1st. And if you hadn't guessed already, the book we've been discussing is Gillian Flynn's 2012 thriller Gone Girl. Gone Girl was a huge bestseller, selling over 2 million copies in its first year, spending weeks at number one in any number of book charts. It was very favourably received and reviewed. And then in 2014, it was made into a film, written by Flynn herself and directed by David Fincher, with Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck as the two main characters. And told us marriage is hard work. Not for me and Nick. As you all know, my wife, Amy Elliott Dunn, disappeared three days ago. I had nothing to do with the disappearance of my wife. I have nothing to hide. Gone Girl was a literary phenomenon, perhaps the second most discussed novel of 2012, because if you remember, 2012 was also the year of Fifty Shades of Grey. If you somehow haven't read the book, or seen the film, or talked to someone who has, Gone Girl is about Amy, a woman, or girl, and we'll get back to that, who disappears without trace in Missouri in the US. Her husband, Nick, soon becomes the main suspect, and the narrative alternates between the two points of view, Amy's diary leading up to her disappearance, and Nick's narrative from the day of the disappearance onwards. As the novel goes on, the narratives become increasingly suspect and unreliable, leading to that much-discussed twist. It's a novel which sparked a boom in crime thrillers with a psychological dimension focused on the female experience, or, to apply the label most often used to categorise novels like Gone Girl, Domestic noir. It's a term that was coined in 2013 by the English author Julia Crouch. She defines it as fiction that is largely based in homes and workplaces. Back to Eva Burke. Typically takes the female experience as its kind of um, material um, based around relationships and um, takes the view that domestic spaces are not always safe for women. Um, that's her definition of domestic noir and it's one that I think is actually um, it's quite incisive and it's the one that I prefer Um, basically they're the books that you see when you go into Eason's and there's just a wall of books that are like the girl on the train and girls doing this Um, it's it's, it's known as girl fiction as well um, just because of that weird propensity to stick girl on the cover after the success of Gone Girl you know, prior to what we call domestic noir and publishing, women were generally like cadavers and girlfriends. This is definitely a more um, internal 
threat and um, ordinary people are at the focus of these novels. We're talking about something that's different from procedurals. We don't tend to have FBI agents and, you know, detective sergeants and things like this. We're talking about ordinary people dealing usually with a threat inside the house or a threat from the past that actually exists in their life that they didn't know about because women I think experience the physical world in an entirely different way to the way men do we are constantly scanning for threat whether we realise it or not and I think these books just sum up that experience in a way that the sort of you know Thomas Harris and Jeffrey Deaver type novels can't possibly do. Notwithstanding the fact that women buy and read far more fiction than men in general the readership of domestic noir as you may imagine is strongly female. I mean I think of it as by women, for women, about women. Um, there are men who read these and there are a couple of men who've been brave enough to write these, but it is predominantly female authorship and female readership. And I think um, if you look at, for instance, the you know the, the current heir to the throne of domestic noir bestseller, The Woman in the Window, uh, A.J. Finn is the, the author's name that's actually a man called Daniel we have Riley Sager the final girls actually a man called Todd you know now men are using androgynous or female names female sounding names um, which I think is kind of progress because it wasn't that long ago that we were told you know to change our names you know even JK Rowling I know that's a different genre but even when she went into crime then she used Robert. So I like to think that think of that as a win. And there are very clear reasons for the strong female following for domestic noir. It speaks to its readership. Female readers of crime fiction are, like any reader, looking for the main tropes of the genre. It's just that a lot of them got pretty fed up of the main female character dying on page one. Also, and crucially, domestic noir reflects the disturbing realities of violence against women. Because, let's be honest, if you're an average woman reading a novel like this, what are the chances you're going to be murdered by a psychopathic serial killer, or even just by a stranger? Tragically and terrifyingly, the majority of murdered women are killed by their current or former partner. The readers of Domestic and War are primarily female, and they're typically middle-class white women, um, which actually, you know, they mirror the protagonists of these novels. I I do think there is a kind of a perverse, maybe not enjoyment, but there is a a sort of intrigue in reading about middle-class people um, having their kind of perfect lives infiltrated and destroyed. Um, and I think that speaks to a fear that we have, um, that, you know, there is this narrative that when you are middle class or um, sort of successful, you're supposed to be safe. You know, you know, there's this kind of suburban net of safety from crime and violence. Um, and these novels really prove that that's not true, um, that it's a myth and that... Crime and violence can find you anywhere. Um, I think that's there's something really probing and, and scary about that that we kind of enjoy reading about. Um, for female readers, I think I think certainly there is more of an awareness now than ever before that the domestic space is not always safe, and often it's the most dangerous place. I think Women's Aid have a statistic that one in two murdered Irish women uh, are murdered by partner or ex-partner. So certainly speaks to a, a fear that you might not be able to trust the people around you or that, you know, home is not always um, a safe haven for women. I think that's something that women, not, not that they enjoy reading about it, but I think that they like that this fiction shines a light on that kind of violence. Like, these novels don't usually have 
serial killers or detectives. Um, they're about kind of, I suppose, the banality of violence in some ways, um, which I think is something that particularly female readers really want to engage with. I think domestic noir at its best really kind of extrapolates the, the lived experience of women and um, it's never sort of shy of making sure that they're positioned in that narratively in that world where um, you know female victimhood is something that we're kind of culturally obsessed with in some ways um, it's very pervasive um, Gone Girl is just one I think Sophie Hanna has a few really good ones as well that sort of address this um, like perverse fascination with destroyed women and dead women We're living in a time with a huge surge in interest in true crime not only in fiction but in TV shows like Making a Murder and of course the ludicrous number of true crime podcasts from Serial onwards The Onion recently did a great parody podcast of the genre called A Very Fatal Murder, which just perfectly skewers the likes of Serial and S-Town. If you haven't heard it, I would definitely recommend it. What makes a murder perfect? What elevates a murder from a regular ho-hum killing to a crime so gruesome and compelling that it deserves its own podcast? Does a murder like that even exist? A Very Fatal Murder is obviously comedy, but in many ways it's very close to what Flynn is trying to do with Gone Girl, to highlight how female victimhood is portrayed and our cultural obsession with the death or disappearance of young, pretty white girls. The idea that kind of female victimhood could be inverted and owned, kind of like this character does. Um, like, if you think about missing white woman syndrome, the idea that there's this like media circus around missing women and how Amy... Um, ultimately turns that circus to her own end um, and turns her own victimhood inside out. I think that's quite appealing and really interesting. But domestic noir is not really new. Gone Girl and then Paula Hawkins' hugely successful The Girl on the Train gave a huge boost to the subgenre, hence the explosion of novels with the word girl in the title, something many people have an issue with. Emily St. John Mandel, who wrote Station Eleven, um, she did some research into this, um, into books with girl titles and she found that books with girl in the title when they're authored by men uh, the girl is more likely to die and when they're authored by women the girl is more likely to survive or be the heroine um, which I think is really interesting Um, I do think there's I think a massive study to be done on our weird preoccupation with the word girl instead of woman Um, I'm not sure Gone Woman would have sold as many books there definitely is something uh, something infantilising about it But there are plenty of books without Girl in the title, and there's a long history of novels with very similar themes and concerns, going right back to the 19th century. I'm sort of looking at um, 19th century uh, novels that are called Husband with a Secret novels. So, you know, the likes of Jane Eyre, The Woman in White, um, Lady Audley's Secret. They're all novels that um, essentially kind of do the same thing. You know, they're about spousal conflict and deceit, um, domestic disharmony, and this sort of really insidious fear that you can't trust the people you live with. Um, So I would take that as the kind of starting point for these kind of narratives. But then moving into the 20th century, uh, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier is a great example. Um, And then there's some really good pre and post-war stuff, The Blank Wall by Elizabeth Sangsey Holding, which is not remembered really at all now, unfortunately, but it's a really fantastic um, kind of tale of like domestic paranoia and alienation. 
Um, there's certainly a perception that crime fiction sort of uses the destroyed female body as a kind of rock to build a mystery on or find mystery in, but I think these novels um, kind of turn that on its head or invert it in that they they have the lived experience of women and they find mystery in that. Um, and kind of give agency to women that typically don't really have a lot of agency in these kinds of narratives. So, while there are clear antecedents to domestic noir, the direction the subgenre takes in the future is obviously harder to map out. There's evidently an appetite for novels of this type, and more generally, crime fiction is the most popular genre of novel today. A lot of newspapers picked up the fact that recently Nielsen Bookscan revealed that crime fiction for the first time ever outsold the very broad category of general and literary fiction. More specifically with domestic noir, as tend to happen in most subgenres, it's become more experimental and it's blending with other genres. Behind Her Eyes by Sarah Pinborough, for example, is a novel both Eva and Catherine mentioned as a new direction for the genre. It's a domestic noir narrative, but with a supernatural edge to it. More importantly, though, there's been a big cultural shift since Flynn's 2012 novel. Sexual harassment and assault scandals in Hollywood and the ensuing worldwide Me Too movement has resulted in women publicly telling their own previously hidden or silenced stories. Closer to home in Ireland, the recent abortion referendum led to many women publicly telling their very personal stories of abortion to try to highlight the injustice and hypocrisy of Ireland's strict anti-abortion laws. Which brings us back to one of the key ingredients of a best-selling novel, reflecting the culture of the time. The last thing you want to do today is write a novel like Gone Girl about an unreliable female narrator, a book about a woman who can't be trusted, whose story shouldn't be believed. This is something that people questioned about Gone Girl at the time as well. I don't love the question, is it a feminist novel? I think that's quite simplistic. I think it's a novel that really challenges you as a reader and a reader of crime fiction to sort of explore your own gendered preconceptions about who deserves sympathy and who deserves um, our kind of readerly alliance. Um, what, which female characters are we allowed to sort of engage with and feel sorry for and be interested in. So today, domestic noir is heading in new directions and trying to grapple with the important questions that Me Too and related movements have brought up. If you think about, again, it's really hard to talk about Gone Girl without spoiling things, but let's say there are some accusations made in that book that are not true. And in this current climate, you cannot do that. And you wouldn't want to do that because you don't want to be perpetrating this myth that, you know, women make stuff up. Um, so I think we'll see less and less of that, but we will see more books like Anatomy of a Scandal by Sarah Vaughan and The Wife by Alifair Burke, which are really taking... Um, you know the the Me Too movement and going places with it. There's a, a big book that sold at the I think at the London Book Fair there recently called The Whisper Network, where you have a group of female colleagues who have just had it with their boss, um, who you know hashtag Me Too, and he um he's about to suffer their wrath. Basically, they get together to have their revenge. Let's say so. We're definitely going to see more books like that, which which all come from the place where domestic noir took these books. You know, we, we can trace it back. So a new direction in domestic noir and possibly fewer novels with girl in the title, it seems. Which, of course, made me ask. Did you want to have girl in the title of your novel or was that a publisher's decision given the kind of general um, backlash against girl titles? Yeah. Or- 
I mean, officially, I'm very, very happy with this. Um, <laughs> unofficially, like, it was not my suggestion. But once it was made, well, first of all, I really liked it. I really liked the title when they gave it to me because I love a title that raises narrative questions. And I think that does raise questions like who is lying and about what and why would you be with someone who lies and so on and so forth. Um, so at first I was like, this is perfect. You know, great title, really love it. And then about five minutes later, I was like, uh oh, like I'm facing into... 18 months of defending you know because you have like the year before the book comes out and then you've got six months of the PR or whatever so um, but that gave me lots of time to hone my arguments so I actually feel like um, why shouldn't I use girl I, I honestly think this backlash against girl in the title is very selective it's, it's aimed only at commercial thrillers written by women essentially um like Edna O'Brien's new book is due to come out next year and it's called Girl we've had The Girls by Emma Klein um there was another book I think it's called Girl in Snow that was very literary fiction no one said anything about those um so (laughs) Mm. you know uh I feel it's very very selective and girl means something in particular um like there was a, I think it was Eva Wiseman in The Guardian wrote an article where she was like okay I just need to find out what's up with all these girl books and she read a load of them to see like what's the appeal and she concluded even though she went into it with cynicism she concluded that you know girl for women represents this time where you're not quite who you're going to be yet but you have this special power you're about to turn into you know this strong adult woman and the girls in these books are girls who are about to do that they're about to find their own strength they're about to make their own world and they're the heroines of these books and I really you know I I don't see the problem I think it's completely bonkers to dismiss a book based on a single word in the title because it doesn't happen to any other word let's be clear girl in the title or not domestic noir is it seems here to stay and there's plenty to choose from a good early example would be uh, barbara vines a dark adopted eye it was published in 1986 it was uh, her name is it's ruth rendell but she uses uh, the name barbara vine to write these sort of really really dark um thrillers and this is the best one um it's just it's one of those novels that it's just sort of soaked with dread and every page you you almost don't want to turn the pages because you don't know you don't want to know what's going to happen but you can't help but turn the pages um she has female characters that are so devious and brilliant and uh i like i think she, it's probably the best example um i'm a huge like flynn fan girl so it does pain me to say that but i actually think that barbara vine was probably the queen of this type of fiction so if you love flynn's writing um, if you love the way she writes her books, I would recommend Jessica Knoll, who wrote Luckiest Girl Alive, um, and uh, Caroline Kepnes, who wrote this fantastic thriller called You, in which you'll find yourself rooting for a serial killer and also terrible things happen in a bookshop. So <laughs> it's a great book all around. And if you're looking for more the domestic setting, you know, a marriage going wrong and, and people not being who they 
say they are or pretend to be. Um, there's actually two books just in the last month or so, both about property that I am raving about, one being Our House by Louise Candlish and the other being The House Swap by Rebecca Fleet. So they both are overtly about property, but they are uh, fantastic thrillers. We need stories today more than ever that question the concept of female victimhood and the traditional role played by women in so much crime fiction. We need novels that reflect the changing values of our time, that challenge our concept of sympathy, that create women characters who can be innocent victims or evil villains or brilliant detectives or ordinary women involved in a type of crime not centred on serial killers and the FBI. We need Gone Girl and plenty more bestsellers like it. That's it for another week of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. There were lots of books mentioned on this episode, but don't worry if you missed any of the titles. All of the titles and the authors and the links and more are all on the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com. While you're there, you can have a browse and listen to any of the other previous 19 episodes. If you enjoyed this one, then you might like episode 4 on popular literature more generally, or episode 15 on Baroness Ortsy and the earliest female detectives. The last two episodes, the double bill on Utopia, were the most downloaded episodes ever for the show. So yeah, things are really growing, and thank you if you're a regular listener, I really do appreciate it. I'm hoping to get a sponsor on board for the show soon, so the more listeners there are, the more money I can get for the show. It'll be a small sum of money, but it would just be really satisfying and would hopefully cover a few of the costs of making the show. So tell your friends, put a link on Facebook or on Twitter. I'm at C-E-D-R-E-A, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Or review the show on iTunes, it all helps so much. Special thanks this week to my wonderful guests, Eva Burke and Catherine Ryan Howard. There are links to their profiles and publications and everything else at wttepodcast.com as well. Music this week was by Patty Mulcahy and by Sasso. They are both great and you can get more details and check them out by following the links on the website. And I think that's it. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.